And a very good evening and welcome to another edition of the Liam Davis Show here on Shoreditch Radio in London. I hope you've all had uh, a lovely week so far. A uh, bit of a change with the weather, of course, with uh, winter seemingly on its way. It's definitely got colder um, and darker, of course, with the clocks having now gone back. Um, so we're getting used to uh, travelling home from work in the dark and going to work in the dark which is uh, quite a, 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 an experience when having spent, obviously, the last six months in, uh, in light evenings and lightish mornings. Um, it's quite an experience going back to travelling to work in the dark and going home in the dark. But anyway, enough of the weather and, and the clocks. Um, busy programme tonight. We're talking education. Lots of education chat tonight. It's probably an exclusive education programme tonight here on the... Uh, on the Liam Davis Show on Shoreditch Radio. Uh, later on in the programme, I'll be joined by Zara Malik. Zara is an English teacher um, at a secondary school in North London. We'll be speaking to her about her career in teaching and some thoughts around the English curriculum um, as well. Um, some discussion about, obviously, changes to the English curriculum going forward. So I look forward to speaking to her um, a little bit later on in the programme. But my first guest on the Liam Davis Show here on Shoreditch Radio on, uh, well, I should say, always a pleasure to welcome him onto the programme. Some of you who are regular listeners to the show will know that uh, he joined us roughly around about a year ago, I think. I think we were around, might have been a bit before that, actually, because I think we were still in the lockdown. got a feeling it was around August uh, 2020 when uh, Sir David uh, last joined us, and always a pleasure to welcome him back onto the programme. Sir David Carter, who, of course, used to be um, the National Schools Commissioner. Um, David, nice to see you again. Nice to nice to speak again. Um, are you well? I'm good, thanks, Liam. Yeah, always a delight to come on the show, and uh, nice to talk to you. Absolutely lovely to have you back, um, David. I mean, a lot's happened, um, David, since you were last on the programme. I mean, um, obviously, that we've gone through another lockdown. <laughs> we've gone through all sorts of other things. Um, as a sort of... Um, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more in a minute. We'll get the listeners to just remind you of your work and obviously your experience in education. But just very briefly, in that interim period, I think I mentioned August 2020 was the last time you were on the programme. We're now November 2021. What's been what's been some of your observations and, and things that you've, you know, sort of almost these days, maybe a little bit as the sort of looking in um, to education? What's, what's been some of your thoughts about the last... Well, year and a bit. I, I, I think it's almost impossible to imagine that uh, there's been a type of period of time in the last 50 years in education. Um, so I've been involved in schools for 40 years nearly. Mm. I can't remember a comparable time really. And, and I suppose my overriding reflection on that would be that the, the, the way in which the workforce in the education sector, teachers, support staff, people have been leading schools, people have been governing schools as well for that matter, the way they've just got on and, and just made it work has just been a phenomenally, a phenomenally successful experience. And I think when this period of time has finally been put to bed and people have moved on from it and you know, we've gone on to the, ne- the next challenges that we'll face, I think we'll look back on this and say, you know, th- this was an incredible period of time when, when education didn't just have to deliver uh, education as a, as, a, as a value in itself, but had to support communities in a way that um, mm. I always aspired to and probably knew we had to when emergencies happened. 
but not in the same level of frequency and day-to-day way that we have. So that would be my observation looking in on it. I, I, I'm in awe of some of the things I've seen happen. They've been phenomenal. Mm, I mean, you're right. I mean, obviously, you, you touched on some of it there, but things obviously such as food banks and... And all the other stuff, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But like you say, schools have almost become at the hub and the heart of the community, which, I mean, they always were. But like you say, I think it's just moved on to a next level, I think, since COVID's come along. We have to be guarded about this, that I think the politicians would like us to think that COVID is now over and done with because they don't want to talk about it anymore. But... I've been, I've been working with some school leaders today, and in this trust, there, there have been 200 new cases of kids with COVID mm. over half term this week. 200 cases. You know, it, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful entry primary school, basically, if you, if you want to do the numbers. And so, so the, and, and I think one of the challenges is for, for schools is that what, when lock, the first lockdown came, I think what happened then was people, schools were in the, were in the public limelight, weren't they? I mean, they didn't choose to be, but they were. People talking about what schools are doing mm. and talking about it yeah actually i think it's as challenging now as it probably was when it first started out and i think that's the that's my concern that, that people forget that people are still dealing with this in schools every day of the week with adults and kids getting sick and whilst those who've had their, their vaccinations may not be getting as sick as they were before when it all started out the disruption that's created in schools is still pretty pretty immense absolutely and i think that's a key point to make David, that, you know, COVID hasn't gone away. And, you know, I know obviously there are, obviously the, 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 the vaccination is being offered to young people now. We've seen that. Um, but it's still seemingly, David, the transmission of the virus, even though perhaps you might not get as sick as you once did, yeah. the transmission of the virus. And obviously what people have got to acknowledge that if a child gets COVID, not only, of course, can they spread it, obviously, in the family home, and maybe, of course, if, if they've all been vaccinated at home, the, 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 the illness won't be the same. But that knocks them out, David, for 10 days of schooling. Now, if they, for example, get a PCR test today and they test positive, that's them out of school until the back end of next week. Now, obviously, it is a difficult one because, obviously, you've got to think about the safety of others and, and everybody in, in the wider picture. But... I mean, 10 days out of school for kids that have already missed a lot of school is a lot, but it is a, it is a, it's a delicate balancing act between, I guess, public health and schooling. It, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? Well, the, the two other things I think really made me think today, one was in some of the most vulnerable communities, you have a lot of families who, where you have intergenerational living. So, you know, you, you've, got, you've got kids picking up the virus in school, not necessarily getting sick, but transmitting it to grandparents. Now, that's causing a problem. It's mm. something I sort of hadn't really thought hard enough about that until somebody pointed that one out to me today. And the, and the other one is, and, um, and, and this is a particular bugbear of mine at the moment, is, is that school inspections are now happening again. Yes. Um, and, and so your point about kids being out of school for 10 days, yeah, absolutely, I get that, and that's a real issue. But, you know, what if a key member of staff, either in, in terms of a teaching member of staff or a department head or, I don't know, or a, or a head teacher, has to isolate for 10 days, but they get the Ofsted call. And, and my, my frustration, and one of the reasons why I've been talking a lot about this and been quite spoken about it, is that the Ofsted framework, for me, is about typicality. The whole, the whole the, the, 
the, the rationale behind an offset inspection is if we look at schools uh, where you've got children of a similar demographic in school X and we compare it with school Y, we should be able to see a degree of typicality and make a formal view about how well the school is doing. But this is anything but typical. You can't predict what your role is going to be tomorrow, what your attendance is going to be tomorrow, and you can't predict whether the people that you expect to be in school next Tuesday are going to be there. And I, and I think that's another level of burden on the, on the education system that, quite frankly, we could just, we could just do without right now. Mm, yeah, I, I would agree with you completely on that. I mean, it is... I mean, it's a massive issue, isn't it, COVID? And, you know, obviously, as we do head into winter now, I mean, I mentioned it right at the top of the of the programme with, obviously, the weather has changed. It has now got significantly colder um, so far this week. The dark nights are here. The dark mornings are here. Um, we know that, you know, people are more susceptible to catching colds, flus, and now COVID this time of year. Um I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe just one last quick thought on this, David. I mean, do you think that there's enough of a plan from the government and and the Department for Education, I guess, in planning for, you know, the next, well, let's say four months, because we've got November, December, January, February. I mean, it was March the 8th last year before schools returned. Um you know, there's an acknowledgement that these four months are quite tricky. Do you think there's, there's, there's been enough planning from from the government and the DfE around, you know, the eventuality that infections do rise? I mean, that's probably the tip of the iceberg, the, the statistics you gave us a moment ago. I'm sure there's a lot of schools around the country at the moment that have got a lot of kids off through COVID and potentially have also got staff off too, as you say. I mean... My view on this is there doesn't appear to be a lot of planning been done around this. I mean, a lot of the safeguards have been removed. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Well, look, I, I, think, I think a year ago, um, I was probably more forgiving of it because cause the reality is we, you know, nobody did ever with this before, mm. whether it was school or it was the government or the DfE, you know, it was new to everybody. Um, and I think what you, what you saw as you went through the summer and the autumn and then into post-Christmas last year, was actually not only the absence of a plan, but a sequence of U-turns and, and advice and guidance that changed within 24, 48 hours. Now, there are, there are lots of things that make school leadership uh, difficult, but one of the things that, that, that makes it easy is a degree of predictability about what's going to happen. Um, and, and when you look at the way that advice and guidance came out, often in the evenings, funnily enough, at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. and experts take their time, they read the stuff, they start to put their own plans in place, and then within, within the course of the next 24 hours, the plan changed and the advice and guidance was changed. So I think it, I think it was even worse than no plan. It kind of went from crisis to, to crisis and knee-jerk to knee-jerk. I think the position that we're in right now is that Given that we've been at this for quite some time, I don't think the sector will be as forgiving this time round because I think schools now know more about how to plan for this than the department does and, and the government does because they're facing they're dealing with it every every day. And some of the school leaders that I'm talking to are getting much more coherent advice from Public Health England than they are from, from the DfE. So I, I think what we've got to, and one of the reasons why we're seeing less emphasis upon um, plans being issued and, and as, as they were a year ago is that actually schools are getting on as they always do and, 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 and are nailing it and, and, are, and are managing their, their 
their schools, their kids, their communities in the way that they've always done. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's probably the same need for the, the level of planning that we saw a year ago. But the other half of the, of the question, I think, is about you know, so, so how serious is the government about recovery and and, and catch up? And, and you know, we constantly hear talk about levelling up. We constantly talk about um, you know recovery curriculum and helping kids catch up. But actually, you know, um, Kevin Collins, who was a guy I have a huge amount of respect for, um, asked for a figure which was which was nowhere near what they were prepared to 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 mm. uh, to. And that, but for me, that was the right figure. It was in the right sort of domain. Mm. Uh, I was looking. I was looking at today at what the funding is per pupil in different parts of the of the country. So in England, the recovery curriculum announced last week in the budget announced that three hundred and ten pounds a child. Three hundred and ten pounds a child. In Wales, it reaches the the halcyon figure of four hundred pounds a child. In Northern Ireland and Scotland, it's two hundred and thirty. But listen to this. In the United States, it's 1,830, and in Holland, it's 2,090 per, per child. Mm. What is it that the government thinks schools are going to be able to do to the tune of £310 a child uh, that's going to make a difference, that is going to be needed to catch up? Because this generation of kids that we've got now, whether they're in year six sitting their sacks next summer, or year 11, or year 13, I've had an experience like no other kid has ever had, probably since the Second World War, mm. in terms of disruption of education. And yet we're saying we think you can we think you can do something extraordinary on three hundred and ten pounds. So do you know what? I, 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 I think schools will do their best and they'll do some amazing work as they always do. But I, I get very frustrated when I hear this talk about, you know, how important education is uh, in this country and when you and you look at those comparative figures. Why is a child in Holland apparently worth 1,500 quid each mm. more than they are in this country. Why is a child in America worth 1,700 pounds more than a child this year? Uh, absolutely. And I think that's a very powerful, very powerful statement indeed, a very well put message, um, David, about funding. Um, just moving on to other matters, um, as I mentioned right at the top, um, I, I said that obviously you used to be the National Schools Commissioner. Um, tell us very briefly, it might be... Uh, listeners to the program tonight who are hearing you for the first time um just tell us a little bit about your own um background in education i know obviously those who listened before know you as a, a head teacher um as well tell us a little bit about your your own experiences yeah okay um so so i was I like, like lots of people who went to education i went to school went to university went back to school and, uh, and basically I, I, that's what i that's what i did until um until i, until I came out of the dfe uh, and schools uh, two years ago. Um, so, so, yeah, I grew up in Cardiff in South Wales. I went to a comprehensive school. Um, uh, it wasn't a particularly great one. I don't think I, I certainly wasn't a particularly academic pupil. Um, the two things, however, that got me out of bed to go to school were music and sport. Mm. Um, I did a music degree, and then my first job was a job teaching music and PE. Um, so, you know, I couldn't believe my luck. I was getting paid to do the two things I really loved doing. And uh, I'd always played a lot of sports. Music had always been a massive part of my life. So I taught music, taught PE. Um, started teaching in 1983. Um, so, you know, coming up to nearly 40 years, in, 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 you know, 39 years this year, 40 next. So education has been my life, really, and something I've, I've cared passionately about. Um, always wanted to work in schools where there was a, where, you know, there was a need to do good work. Um, and uh, moved all around the country to, to, to take different different roles and, 
and different opportunities. Spent probably the, the vast majority of my my leadership experience in Bristol. Um, firstly at John Cabot City Technology College, and then that became the Cabot Learning Federation Multi Academy Trust. Um, and then in 2014, um, decided I'd have a go at the Regional Schools Commissioner job when it was advertised. Uh, got that job in the Southwest, did that for, for about a year. And then the National Commissioner job came up, which was just a, an amazing opportunity. And to this day, I look back to, to, you know, to myself going to a, a fairly ordinary, comprehensive in, in Cardiff, fairly, fairly rough old experience, to be honest. And, and I ended up doing a job like that. And, and, and I always use that as an example. You, know, you never know what's going to happen. You know, no. I did. I didn't go to. Um, I didn't go to a top independent school and uh, didn't have a silver spoon. Um, I, I worked hard and, and, and tried to make a difference, and uh, that's what I can continue to do today in the small way that I, I play that role uh, in these days. Mm. Just thinking about COVID. Um, I mean, we obviously, David, we had a lot of conversation about COVID, and obviously, you mentioned your time as a head. Is there a, a, a part of you, obviously, with everything that's gone on with COVID, is there a part of you? over the last year or so, well, nearly two years now with, with COVID, that wishes that with everything that's gone on, that you, you were still a head teacher, that you were still out on the on the front line. And I mean, given obviously the passionate, you know, response to the whole thing and everything that you've talked about, I mean, you, you know, I dare say there's part of you that still wishes that you were, sounds to me like you were still ahead and, and sort of out on the front line, opening the batting as it were. Yeah, too right. Uh, there, there's certainly been moments in, in this period of time where I've been offering people advice and offering a bit of help and just listening to their experience. And when I, you know, when I put the phone down or, or come off Zoom, whatever we've been doing, thinking, do you know what, I, I, I'd love to be trying to, to, to sort this out. And, and, and I think it's a, the reason why it's a good question is of all the jobs I've done, that's the one I miss the most. Mm. I enjoyed running a mat, really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed being a commissioner. Uh, I enjoyed that responsibility that comes with a national role, but the, but the job that I loved was the, from, well, where was it? So 1997 through to about 2010, I was a head teacher, and, and I think I was in my element then. I think that was where I did my best work. I loved it, absolutely loved running the school. And, and you're dead right, I love being on the gate in the morning, I love doing bus duty, I, I like doing bus duty. I like dealing with the things that happen in playgrounds from time to time, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, I, I just, I just, I, that was everything I wanted to do. I really enjoyed it. I'd, I'd go and watch the kids play sport at the end of the day or on a Saturday morning if they're playing. I'd, I'd play the piano in assemblies. <laughs> yeah, That's a real old school that. head playing the piano in, yeah. in, the, in the assembly. Yeah, Love it. But I, I really, really enjoyed those Those years were great. And, and I'm and not, not for one minute do I regret what I went on to do because I loved that as well. But yeah, do you know, going, going back into the, 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 the cut and thrust of school leadership. Um, that, that, was, that was a great experience, and yeah, that, that, that'd be a job I'd go back and do, for sure. Absolutely. Um, last time you were on the programme, um, David, we spoke about your um, book that you wrote, as I say, just over a year ago now, which was uh, Leading Academy Trusts. Um, I think when we spoke, it had just been released. I think it had been yeah. recently released. Um, what's the feedback? I mean, obviously, it's been out now for well over a year. What's, what's the feedback been like from people you know who've got in touch maybe through social media through the work that you you currently do um going into schools going into mats um going in i dare say still working with local authorities as well um what's 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 been the 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 general feedback that you you've had from from people in regards to the book so it's it's been really humbling 
um, to be honest with you. So, so before I just before I answer that question, I'll just say why I wrote it. Um, I guess there were two reasons really why I wrote it. One was because I I felt I'd learned so much about multi academy trusts, particularly the leadership of schools in general over my career. That I just I just wanted to find a way to get it down and share it. Um, and there's only so many keynotes you can do, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. So the writing the book was part of that. And secondly, it was also a bit of for me personally, I just wanted to put a bit of a full stop on a few things and say, look, I've done this now. Because you, you get you get out of date very quickly, I think, in our profession. And, and you know, when we just talked about going back to be ahead, I mean, the reality is I find it very difficult because the world has moved on a bit since 2014 when I was last, uh, last in, in a school leadership role. Not to say I wouldn't like to do it, but, it, but the world changes and you have a shelf life. Um, I suppose in terms of feedback, there are two things. One is it sold 4,000 copies, which blew me away. I didn't expect it would do that. Um, I was really pleased with that. I was really pleased with how many trusts kind of bought multiple copies, so they gave them out to their leadership teams, they yeah. gave them out to their leaders. Um, I was really pleased, you know, that, that people, people, they didn't, they didn't assume, which was right, that I'd written the blueprint, because I, know I would never be so arrogant to think I could do that. And I don't think you need to do it anyway. But, but I, what I did like was the fact that some of the things I shared with them, people then went away and tried and used them and said that was great, that, that was really useful. So for me, it did the job it was intended to do. Um, it was, uh, I mean, as you know, I worked with Laura McInerney on it. Yeah. This day, I wouldn't, have got, I wouldn't have got it done or finished. I was a bit like a very typical boy with his coursework, and you know, even give me a deadline when I was doing this. But I like Laura breathing down your neck saying, you said you were going to get this done by X, you get it done. I mean, we're seeing, we'll talk about converter academies in a moment, um, David, because I think there's a, there's a particular point with that that I want to talk about. But, I mean, from the schools that you're working with, do you, are you finding now that more and more schools um, are now willing to embrace the idea of being part of a map? Because, I mean, one of the things we spoke about, I think, last time you are on the programme, there there is still some people that, you know have got a negative perception of academies that that you know they rip up the rule book almost and and do things as they want um there is still that but are you finding that the more and more school leaders that you work with and the more and more people in the profession that you work with that there is now a far more if you like warmer reception towards working in a mat and as part of a mat than perhaps there was let's say five years ago I think, I think that's quite a tough one to answer because I, 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 so I don't think it's an avalanche by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I still think people who were sceptical about Max before the pandemic are still sceptical about them. Um, I don't think it helps that the DFE doesn't really know what to do with academies. Mm. They, 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 can't, they don't seem to be capable of making a really clear statement about what the direction of travel is going to be. That would undoubtedly help if they did that, um, but they haven't done it. Where I think... Um, where I think I'm seeing it change uh, is there are two, two in two ways. One is in communities where, where the, the MAT actively supported all of it, the schools in its community, not just the ones it was responsible for, but gave support you know, in a really philanthropic way without expecting anything back. 
two schools, you know, you, know, you, you, you imagine being a one form entry primary school on your own, isolated, uh, in a local authority where, where there's, there's very little support available. It's a, that's a great place to be. And a lot of trust really stepped up and, 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 and really helped. And I think there's one example where people go, blimey, after all of that effort, we want to be part of this now. So they're voluntarily coming to the table saying we'd like to join. And I think the other one is where where trusts have begun to recognise that if you tell people that the model is a kind of a punitive one that says if you join this you have to stop everything you used to do and do it our way, it's no surprise that a school that's sitting on a good offset judgment is going to say thanks but no thanks. And I think quite a few trusts are beginning to realise that actually if we're going to encourage those schools to come and join us, we've got to give them a role in our trust. We've got to see them as a school improvement partner. We've got to see them as a, as a trainer of, uh, of, of training teachers. We've got to ask them to help us with a new curriculum or assessment model. And, and when, you, when you embrace it that way, I'm certainly seeing examples of schools moving closer towards trust when they, when they see that they're, they're being brought in to add capacity and not being told they have to change the model which, which has brought them success. In terms of are the floodgates opening of, of lots of lots of schools wanting to become academies, I, I'm not seeing that across the country. I think it varies, um, and I think there'll be a slow creep. I mean, I think we're up to about 9,800 academies in the sector. Something like 55% of children are now in academies. So, you know, I think we're, we're well past the critical mass stage of it. But I think it's going to need something more than just an ideological argument as to why that will grow even further. And it's taken us 10 years to get to 9,500, which is roughly 50% of the sector. You know, if we do the maths, it's probably another 10 years for everybody else. But without, without a clear sense of direction from a government that says this is an important priority for us or this is how we're going to fund it, this is the incentive we can create for you to join a trust, then you're going to be left as a, as, a, as a school leader, having a leader-to-leader conversation, and, and it's about me persuading you, and and, that, and and that's not a bad place to be, but, but, it's, but it's going to take longer. Mm. I mean, there obviously is still some, and I think this is something you picked up in the, in the book as well, David, there is still some criticism around regulation um, of, of MATS, obviously we've, you, you mentioned the government there, um, and obviously there is a, 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 a you know, a, a a custodian role, of course, you're given public funds and you've got to use those public funds uh, properly. I mean, this is something I, I dare say that when you was in your role as the, the National Schools Commissioner, that it was something that you probably were very passionate about, is about regulation. Do you think that's something also that's moving in the right direction in terms of the regulation of trusts? I mean, we obviously have seen there are still some trusts that it hasn't worked, in, you know, and that is something that you highlighted in the book as well for various different reasons. It could be financial mismanagement. It could be the fact that the recruitment and retention in those trusts has been poor. There's lots of different reasons. But are you seeing, again, and maybe again from 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 when you've written the book to now, and again speaking to people and the overview and the people that got in touch, that there does appear to now be a greater regulation and overview of academies and and perhaps. You know, we've said about the government, perhaps they're not really leading on it, but those around are providing more support, if you like. So I definitely think it's shifting. Um, uh, and I think I think some really sensible things are being put in place. You, you know, there, there is still be, um, and there always will be examples, both in the maintained and the academy sector, where, where people do crazy things, not necessarily deliberately. Sometimes it's, it's, it's ignorance, but nevertheless, it looks crazy when you, when you uncover it. 
But I, I think, you know, I mean, so one of the things that I used to get very exercised about was the related party transactions bit, where, where uh, if you're a trustee of a multi-academy trust, for example, you know, you, I don't know, you're a director of a company or you provide a service which the trust pays you for. Um, I, I was very adamant, and I still, I still think, I still believe this. You can either provide a service or you can be a trustee. I don't think you can be both. Um, and I think we need to get some clear blue water between those those two those two things. And I know what the DFE has recently introduced. Um, I think this is a smart move, which is related party transactions above a certain level have to be signed off. Now that wasn't there before, so that's a form of regulation which now makes people sit up and think um, and decide whether or not that you know, that's the right thing to do. There's a lot more exposure given, both in the media, quite rightly, but also in the DFE and scrutiny to executive salaries. You know, I mean, some of them, some of them. Are, are, are too high in my view. Um, you know, doing 24 hours a day. So you think about people's productivity. The productivity is limited by how many hours there are in a day and the working hours as well. So that's starting to, I think, be, be, be reined in, and people are recognising that, that some of that has got to, got to change. I think um, some of the other things around some of the ethical behaviours. I think the fact is that the regional schools commission has now been in place for seven and a half years. I think it is. Um, and, and, the, and the knowledge that they have of the schools in their region means that some of those unethical behaviours that went under the radar before are now being uncovered much more quickly. So, mm. yeah, I do, I do think it's happening, and I do think it's improving. And I, and I think there's also another element, which is a little bit harder to quantify, but there is definitely more of a self-regulation going on, where I think people within the sector are calling out bad behaviour when they see it. Um, and I think that that's not unhelpful either uh, in, in that respect. Um, and is there more we can do? I'm sure there is. But, but, but if, you, if you compare to what it was like, and it was so unpaid in the kind of 2012, 13, 14 era, to how it is now, it, it's much more transparent than it was at that time. Yeah. Uh, one final brief point on this, um, David, before I move on um, to, to yourself, is um, uh, one of the things that I've picked up, um, David, and this is something that was around obviously 10 years ago, um, schools became converter academies. Um, now we're starting to see more and more converter academies for different reasons joining MATS, mainly because perhaps it's no longer a financially sustainable model. Um, what's your thoughts on that in terms of, again, uh, you know, there was obviously lots of schools wanted to become academies when it first came around because they wanted control of governance and finance and the local to stop the local authority in some sense is taking a huge top top slice for services that actually perhaps they didn't feel they were getting value for money now some of these schools are, are having to become part of maps because of funding etc etc is do you think the map model is perhaps the only model that, that that perhaps the day of the converter academy it was nice while it lasted but we now have to move to a model where schools have got to be part of this like network. Really, I suppose, I suppose, and COVID may have exacerbated this as well. To move forward, um, they've got to be part of a map. So I've, I've thought a bit about this, and, and I think there is room in the, in the sector for companies. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't approve any more. I think, but I, but I certainly wouldn't be putting pressure on good and outstanding schools. To, to join Mats against their will, mm. I, I just, that just feels counterintuitive. I think there are lots of conversion academies that, even though they're not part of a Mat, do an awful lot of support work. 
you know, whether they might have a teaching school on or, or they might be one of the new teaching school hubs, but they still do a lot of system work, which is great. And, I, and, and for me, that's really important that, um, that schools work together. But I think, there, I think there are a couple of reasons why commercial academies are thinking this way. So, so you, you've hit the nail on the head with one of them. It's about the sustainability. You know, can you continue to do everything that you need to do and continuously improve with an ever, ever more challenging inspection framework on your own? Uh, and I think um, some schools are recognising the answer to that is no and thinking about their future. I think there's another example where I think Converter Academies, say of the 2011-2012 era, who were once outstanding, without necessarily the challenge and rigour and support of working as, partly, as part of a, of a formal collaboration like a MAP, have seen those offset grades tumble a little bit. Mm. And so in scope, I guess, because their standards aren't on where they once were, and there's another group there. And then I think the third group is a group I alluded to earlier about schools where trusts actively want them to come and join them because they can help and they can play a role in, in, in that. So uh, I've, I've got no doubt that we'll see more single academy trusts become multi-academy trusts. And I've got no doubt that small small trusts will start to merge together. I think that'll just be part of the evolution of the system. But I don't, I don't think that it would be it would be necessary or 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 even desirable to create a policy that says all standalone academies have to go into a map because they're doing really well and they're providing a great education to the kids they've got and they're helping another school. Just just let them get on with it. Mm. Um, I mean, that's some, some great conversation there and some fantastic summary there on on academies and, and maps. And, of course, the book should say, if anybody's still interested in David's book, it's Leading Academy Trusts. Um, and you'll find it available all at Amazon and all various different places um, by David, Sir David Carter. Um, David, final question before I let you go. Um, I mean, I know one of your main loves is, of course, um, Cardiff City. Um, you referenced them earlier. Um, and, of course, I know you enjoy your golf and I know you've been out doing a lot of walking this summer. Um, but, I mean, you mentioned it, you sort of referenced it right at the very beginning. You know, are you still very much still trying to keep your, your, your foot in the door with, I mean, you mentioned that you work with, still working with a lot of school leaders and, and doing various things. Are you, is there still projects within education that you're working on? Yeah, there is. There is. I mean, I'm, I'm consciously trying to do a bit less. Um, I, I, I don't want to work full time anymore, so I'm, I'm easing back a bit on some of that work. But yeah, no, I am, and I'm, I'm still working with, with trusts and with school leaders and, uh, and helping helping boards, trust boards, trustees, as well as school leadership teams and trust leadership teams think about their strategy. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely carrying on doing that. Um, I suppose my trustee work, my, my own trustee work, is beginning to pick up a bit. I'm a trustee at Centrepoint. I might have said that before. Yeah. Um, but social care has had a really tough experience throughout COVID, and homelessness has not gotten easier. So I love the work we do at Centrepoint. Uh, I chair the uh, Tim Henman Tennis Foundation, which is a charity that does some great work uh, using sports as a vehicle with um, with young people who are, who are not very well and young people who are disadvantaged. That's really really good. I enjoy doing that. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I'm, 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 the wheel has turned full circle. I'm doing more music and sport than I used to do uh, when I was too busy, and I, and I love doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm still passionate about my football, my cricket. Golf, golf is a really interesting thing for me because I started it three years ago. And it's absolutely got its teeth into me. So, <laughs> I, love the, I love working out handicaps. I love working out handicaps. So, um, that, that's really inspiring. And, uh, and I'm still, you know, Claire, my wife and I, we went to, uh, 
went to our first gig last week for, for ages. We went to level 42, which will, again, give my age away. But I love that band. And we're going to see Jules Holland in a couple of weeks. So getting back on the concert tour, that's something we want to do as well. So, so life is good at the moment. And uh, I've got a really nice balance and um, I'm enjoying it very much. Lovely. Well, listen, David, as ever, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, good luck with everything you're doing. I'm sure we'll catch up again very, very soon. The education world, of course, keeps us busy as ever. So, um, David, listen, it's lovely to speak to you and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, all right. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much, David. And that was Sir David Carter there joining me here on the Liam Davis Show on Shoreditch Radio. And that all leads very nicely into my second and final guest on the Liam Davis Show here on Shoreditch Radio this evening. Um, first time, always love a first time guest on this programme. Um, as I said, it's a really exclusive education programme tonight. Um, obviously, we had Sir David Carter, um, who used to be the National Schools Commissioner and a head, of course, uh, in, in the southwest of England. Uh, we're very much talking London now uh, because my next guest um, is an English teacher. Um, at a secondary school in North London and delighted as I say to welcome her for the very first time onto Shoreditch Radio uh, Zara Malik. Zara welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh it's always a pleasure to, uh, to, to, to welcome new guests onto the programme. So before we go any further it's a question I always ask anybody from the education profession when they first come onto the programme. Um, did you always want to be a teacher? Absolutely not. <laughs> Definitely not. If I'm being completely honest, school was never really my, my cup of tea. I, I mean, I didn't really enjoy it too much. Where did you grow up? East London. East London. East London. Um, I went to quite a good school, um, but I wasn't really too educational myself. No. At all. Um, I was. I wasn't naughty, I wasn't disruptive, wasn't any of that, but I was definitely the quiet one. So the thought of even raising my hand to contribute in a lesson was beyond me. So now the fact I'm standing up in front of a class full of 30 kids and talking is never something I imagined I would do. Um, I actually fell into teaching uh, because I finished my degree, got my degree in English Lit. Yep. thought, where do I go with this? Where do you go next? Exactly. Yeah. Where do you go with this now? And Dad said to me, Dad runs a chemist, and he said to me, right... If you don't know what you're going to do, you're going to come, you're going to work with me. And I thought, oh my, I need to find a way out of this. No way. <laughs> no, I just had to find a way out. So I thought, right, let me try this teaching course. Signed up for the PGCE and I absolutely fell in love with it. Mm. Love it. Like, I can't imagine doing anything else now. And it's um, been eight years, hasn't it? Eight years. It's yeah. a long time. Very long time. I feel like an eternity on some days, I dare Absolutely. say. Absolutely. <laughs> most days. Most days. <laughs> Just based on that then, I mean, that's an interesting route into teaching because it, it wasn't something that you were going to do. But, I mean, obviously the listeners can't see your face right now and you're laughing and you've got a, 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 a big smile on your face and you can see the warmth that you've got towards the job. But do you think teachers are born, not necessarily made? I mean... It was something that you absolutely didn't give any thought to, whether it be when you went to school yourself, when you was at university, mm, mm. but you've sort of fallen into it and you absolutely love it. And again, you can read a lot. I'd say that you're probably very good at it, mm. but you didn't necessarily want to do it. So would you agree with that comment that good teachers are born, not necessarily made? Um, I think to be a good teacher, you have to have charisma. You have to be able to engage with young people. 
you have to be able to, especially working in an, in a London school. Yes. You have to be able to have an understanding of the context of where we work. Yes. Um, and I think once you've got those things down, and once, as you know, building relationships with the students is just it's it's paramount. We mm. have to do that. Mm. Everything else kind of falls into place. Mm. Um. I think in the eight years I've spent at my current school, I've definitely seen t- some teachers who, you know, they've come out of the profession quite quickly. Yeah, it's too um, much. Too much. But someday it comes probably very naturally too. Yeah, absolutely. But I always tend to think it's you're either on one one end of the spectrum or the other. Um, I think you either really really enjoy it or actually it's very overwhelming. Mm. Um, that could just also be based on the school you're at as well. Yes. And the area you're at. Um, the people you're working with, the students you're working with, but ultimately, I think, I think everyone is able to teach. I think you could teach, but how great a teacher you could be, I think it's it's only some, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Um, you're an English teacher. I am. Um, as you mentioned, you, you did mm-hmm. your degree in English Lit, I think you said at yeah. university. Um, would you say that it's become? I mean, it's a, it's obviously a, a course. At GCSE and probably also at A level as well, mm-hmm. that because of COVID has become much much tougher mm-hmm. to sort of deliver and get through Absolutely. because of time lost, mm-hmm. because of the vastness. I mean, it's obviously two GCSEs. There's a hell of a lot of marking involved mm-hmm. when you do assessments and and everything. Have you found that in the last two years that it's become so much tougher? Absolutely really felt it actually I was speaking to one of my colleagues today and I think the conversation has been on Twitter as well mm. um, since we've been back in school um, so I don't think it's just our school but I've really really noticed it especially with our students maturity levels um, their approach to their own studies like my year 11 class at the moment you know they're just so immature they almost act like year nines mm. and I think I really do see that um, do you think some of that is because of the amount of time that they've spent out of school? Absolutely. Do you think that that's had a significant impact? I mean, you know, we've, in certain London boroughs, you know, th- th- obviously some are more affluent than others. Mm. Um, you know, we're here in the city of London. Mm. Um, this is quite an affluent part of, of town. Mm-hmm. Um, but the further north you head towards Hackney, mm. Haringey, yeah. um, you, you know, people call Hackney quite a gentrified area, but it mm. depends on what part of Hackney you're in. You know, in Harringay, people say, oh, well, that's become more gentrified. But again, if you live in Highgate or, mm. or, or you know, Crouch End, it is. But if you live in Tottenham or Wood Green, it isn't. Mm. Um, you know, people don't understand. Some of these kids, that when they were off, they don't have access to devices. And, mm. you know, the only device they might have is a phone. But that's not really suitable for doing work and, 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 and everything. And people have gone on about, oh, you know, we've got this wonderful offer. We're doing the online learning. That might work for more affluent schools in Surrey. Mm. But in inner London, where there is high levels of deprivation, whatever people might say, yeah. it doesn't necessarily work. And that time out of school and the loss of that structure mm. that school gives them mm. surely has had you know, significant impact. Social, emotional, mental, all sorts of impacts. And I think even when I was teaching online, it was just ridiculous. Levels of engagement were so low. Mm. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for most people, but... They weren't, they weren't completing the work. So when we, when we came back to school, there was a lot of catch-up that we had to do. Um, I'm second in charge of English, so I'm responsible for Key Stage 4. Yep. And just the amount of intervention we had to put into place to try and catch up our students where they needed to be. Yep. 
um, our year 11s in particular, so GCSE in English is a two-year course. So those, we teach all of the content in year 10, and year 11 is just a revision course. So those students who were off for the whole of year 10, they completely missed out on that extra year. So it was like cramming two years into one. Um, and it was difficult, it was overwhelming, and that's just us thinking about English. We're not even thinking about all the other subjects that they had to no. tackle, so mm. it was difficult for them. Absolutely. Um, being an English teacher then, um, obviously you are very familiar with the various different um, texts that are taught at GCSE. If I think back to when I did GCSE English, Shakespeare, mm-hmm. I think we did Romeo and Juliet. Classic. Yeah. Um, Macbeth. <laughs> Yeah, love that. Um, we did an Inspector Calls. Yeah, still doing that. <laughs> um, probably hasn't changed that much then. No. <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, but there's been obviously a lot of comment, and, and you know, I've spoken to a couple of history teachers on this program before. Mm. Do you think that the English curriculum, perhaps going forward, needs to have a long, hard look at itself? I mean, we've talked quite a lot about reform of GCSE and A level. Um, in terms of exams, but also in terms of perhaps content, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the texts and things that are studied at, at GCSE, for example, are not very reflective no. of modern society. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the curriculum, the English curriculum, needs reform going forward to include more authors and work from, from the Bain community? Ultimately, yes to better reflect contemporary society. And I mean, I think this is such a huge topic and a big debate that's going on at the moment. I actually recently read in an article by Penguin Random House publisher that 56 of the 65 novels and plays on the English literature specification across the three major exam boards, so I'm talking OCR, LXL, AQA, are all written by white authors. Mm. So of the nine books, that are written by BAME authors, only four of them were introduced just last year. I guess it's a positive indication that exam boards are beginning to review and adapt to the current spec, but ultimately, our students aren't being taught texts which reflect their current living conditions mm. and you know, texts by authors who represent a part of their lives. Um, literature, when taught in schools at its best, should expose students to a breadth of writers, widening their horizons, preparing them to become avid readers in the latter stages of their life. But I found that students are just unable to relate to much of the context and content of the text taught, which doesn't inspire them to want to read outside of their classes. Mm. And of course, you know, children need access to the English canon, traditional works of the past, as it's an important element of English literature. However, they also need to read books which are directly relevant to their lives, and the lack of choice from BAME writers is just too limited and definitely needs to be more inclusive. Mm. I, I mean, this it, it, obviously been a, been a, a big um, topic in, in more recent times. And, and, and it is true, isn't it? I mean, you make a really good point there that, you know, how, how would a modern teenager mm-hmm. relate to Shakespeare, really? I mean... I think you got right. It still has a place because of the the, the classic nature of 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 the writing. But I mean, it uses words that nobody uses anymore, like thou, for example. (laughs) Just to throw that out there. But there are lots of others as well. Uh, I am showing showing my limited knowledge of my GCSE grade C in English. 
Um, but it, but it, but it, but when you think, surely a, a shift to more contemporary texts from a from a wide range of, of authors, diverse diverse authors, mm-hmm. surely is the way forward. When you think that. I say, how do we ever expect young people to engage in reading when they hit an age where they can make choices for themselves? Mm-hmm. If the only thing they've read is, you know, um, Shakespeare, you know, mm-hmm. like Romeo and Juliet or, or Hamlet or whatever it might be, um, yeah. A Midsummer Night's Dream. I, I say, I'm not saying they haven't got a place, but... No, there just needs to be a better balance. Absolutely. Between, yeah, and I think, you know, the current curriculum needs a lot of reviewing, probably across the board, not just talking English. Mm. Um, as you said, you've spoken to history teachers, and I think the same applies there as well. Mm. So, yeah, big topic, that one. Massive topic, <laughs> and, and I think one that definitely will rumble on um, for the next uh, few years. Um, and it'd be certainly interesting to see when the new GCSE, the next set of GCSE specs come out, mm. potentially A-level specs as well, if, you know, the exam boards, as you say, and, and I know some of it is controlled by the government in terms of what the exam boards need to put in there, but be interested to see what is included um, when the next set of specs are published, I would think, in the next couple of years. I mean, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, talking about COVID. I mean, would you say that in your professional career so far that, you know, it's been the toughest you've seen? I mean, I've had guests on the programme, head teachers, teachers, who said that behaviour has become more challenging, that learning has become more challenging, getting students to do homework has become more challenging... Um, you know, lunch times even have become far more of a challenge than, than they were pre 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 COVID. I mean, this is something. I mean, just talking to Sir David Carter earlier on in the program, and he said that one thing the government absolutely hasn't got right is the amount of money that it's invested mm-hmm. into supporting schools to, you know, deliver, a, a, if you like, a post COVID uh, education. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what do you think? Would you say, I mean, you've been in the job eight years now. Would you say that it's it's been tougher just on the overall, but we talked about the curriculum, but the overall picture, would you say it's been tougher? Absolutely. I think, as I was saying earlier, I think we really have been able to notice immaturity levels have dipped with our students massively. I think it's been quite hard to tell how much of it is solely because of COVID. Mm. Just because at my school currently we've got new leadership in. Yes. So certain rules have been relaxed a little bit. Um, detention sanctions aren't in place as they were. Um, so I think a lot of it maybe is due to that, but definitely due to just lack of emotional intelligence, lack of growth. Um, all of those things that the students are usually exposed to as they move from year seven, transition to year 11, which a lot of our students at the moment haven't had that experience. Mm. Um, so I think, and even that, the ability to just independently work at home, like I was saying with my GCSE students, they don't know how to revise. I mean, we deal with that at the best of times, but thinking about now especially, they just, they don't know how to get on with it themselves. Yes. Um, and they just, you know, they kind of, it's quite, I don't know, it's difficult because I sort of see them looking a bit lost, a bit overwhelmed. Um, we've obviously had certain things relaxed in, in prep for their summer exams. Yes, yep. Which is good. Do you think that's a good thing? I definitely So that they know that roughly what, I mean, they won't know the exacts, but yeah. they'll have a steering in regards to topics Definitely. for the summer. I don't know if it's enough. I don't know if it's enough just because... Like I said, I only focus on English. I mean, some of it might also depend on what... I mean, we were talking with Sir David Carter earlier, and 
we were saying one of these things depends on how the next few months go because he was saying that he's been working in a school today mm. um, in a, a part of a trust um, and there's 200 kids who've got COVID. 200? 200 kids that have got COVID at the moment. Oh now, I mean, if that's November, mm. what's it going to be like in December and January? Now, we think back last year, we had a lockdown from January, mm-hmm. from the 1st of January to the 8th of March. So it was mm. two months. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of this truly will depend on... I mean, I know there will be very keen to have exams this summer in whatever form it, they are that are externally marked. Yeah. I don't think anyone would want the tags oh, no. system that we had last year. <laughs> but no but it, the key point here is also that I think all of this is going to be governed by how the next few months are, mm. really, and, and how much COVID takes off in the next few months. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd definitely agree. And even now, we're kind of sort of, we've been pushed to have that sort of dialogue and that narrative with our students. Like my year 10s, sat an assessment today and I had to say to them you know a couple of years ago we had to base our CAGs on the year 10 results so you need to take it seriously because we just don't know what's going to happen but again if we're thinking about mental health with our students which is such a huge thing the anxiety you have to be really careful about how you word certain things and you know I think it's our job primarily at the moment to make our students just feel safe and secure as much as possible and try not to think about what could possibly happen mm. you know. um, one other thing to get your thoughts on because um, I know it's something that we've been laughing about as well um, a test article mm-hmm. written very recently um, <laughs> around um, I mean it was something that, that sort of came out of Covid and obviously we've seen a huge shift in, in, in the workplace now where obviously things have become far more relaxed than perhaps they were mm-hmm. five years ago, let's say. I mean, do we think that, like, with people working in schools, that actually there needs to... I mean, I was reading something today that actually schools need to consider flexible working for teachers. Um, perhaps some people would say that's a great idea. I'm not sure quite how it would put in practice, but anyway, be interested on some thoughts on that. But also the idea of still the notion of wearing ties and all still being a very formalised industry, perhaps more so than where we're sitting right now here in the in the city of London. Where, where, where do you sit on that? Is it? Do you think it's all very outdated now and there needs to be a reflection? I mean, we've talked here about curriculum moving to a more modern thinking. Is this something that also needs to consider being moved to a more a more modern thought or perhaps actually maintaining tradition? Mm. There's not, perhaps some say there's not many of them left. Mm. It's something that we need to stick to. Um, again, I think I think there just needs to be a good balance. Hmm. Um, personally, I'm someone who likes to take care of my appearance, and I think it is important. It's important um, to set an example, isn't it? Absolutely. But is there maybe room for more individualism than perhaps, you know, than was five years ago, let's say? Definitely, and I think at my, at my current school, the male teachers have it a lot harder than the female teachers. They're expected to wear, you know, full suit and tie, no matter what the weather, whereas we are kind of able to be a bit more flexible yes. with the summer dresses and the summertime. You know, everything's just a bit more casual for the women, and that in itself isn't fair. As we were saying, it's about consistency. Yes. And consistency definitely needs to be put into place. 
But then when I think about the students as well, I really like the fact that my school are proper about the uniform. Yes. Um, you know, I'm pedantic when it comes to kids tucking in their shirts, fixing their ties. And a lot of them are like, Miss, why do you care? It's my shirt tucked in. And they're not, they know, <laughs> they know not to enter my classroom. Well, that's good, but that's room. about upholding standards, isn't right, it? Right, exactly. And I think, you know... So it, it, so, so it is a case of maintaining standards, but also... Striking a balance that, of, of individualism, even for students also, mm. as well as staff. Mm. And I think I think that's what it's about. So I say to them, you know, if you look good, if I if I know that you can dress in a certain way, I've got those high expectations of you. Mm. When you come into the classroom, I also have those high expectations of your learning, um, and those standards are set. And I think you can definitely tell the difference between. I think it's about organisation as well, because you know when you're conducting learning walks or you're observing a lesson you can definitely tell um, the teachers who have got those high expectations high expectations classrooms are tidy everything's super organized and you don't come in dare come into my room until your uniform is correct exactly there's only been a minute on the floor I'm that teacher I'm that teacher but at the same time if I was asked to wear a full suit and tie every day I think I'd probably have a different opinion. I think just the nature <laughs> of our job. I think you might leave the well. profession. Possibly. I think so. I think so. <laughs> so a bit hypocritical there. Um, interesting. Um, that's that's another debate. There's there's quite a few on this program that I'm sure that will rumble on. Um, let's talk about you a little bit just to finish off because I'm conscious that I've got to wrap up shortly. But um, where would you like to see yourself? What's mum and dad's view then? I mean. Eight years on, I mean, mm. is Dad disappointed that you didn't um, <laughs> come work in the chemist? And or, chemist. No, or, or, I mean, I mean, where would you like to see yourself in five years' time? Um, parents are super, super proud of what I do. I think, um, you know, Dad especially always spoke about how he really values the fact that I'm helping, you know, and I think that's a lot of what our job is about. Mm. You know, we are supporting the younger generation. I think it's admirable. What we do is admirable. Um, Especially in the current climate. Absolutely. Um, I definitely know teaching is for me. I absolutely love it. Um, five years' time, hopefully that's my answer as well. Um, I have spent six years as assistant head of English, so I've definitely kind of... I'm familiar with the curriculum side. My goal now is to move more towards pastoral. I was going to say, oh, <laughs> why did I know that next um, that next line was coming? So it's more a shift towards pastoral. You yeah. enjoy the the it. pastoral element of the job. I bet you've been a form tutor. Yes. And I bet you was a very good one. Well, and you might still be one. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm a year 11 form tutor. Oh, well. Yeah. yeah. But I'd love to be ahead of year next. That's the goal. That's definitely the goal. Yes, some people still want to be um, ahead of you. Um, Are you an advice? <laughs> <laughs> that face says it all. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> she said before we went on the air that she's going to try and put me on the spot. She just has. Um, no, it's a fantastic job, of course. Um, listen, Dara, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. We'd love to have you on the programme again sometime Absolutely. soon. Um, it's been really lovely talking to you. Um, and that's it for the Liam Davis Show on Shoreditch Radio um, this week. Uh, I am back uh, next Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Remember now the new show. We're now Wednesdays at 8 rather than Tuesdays at 8. Um, and, yeah, so from next week, well, actually from this week, because uh, you, you're listening to it right now, uh, 8 o'clock uh, Wednesday nights is the new slot. I will be back next Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Um, so I look forward to your company then. In the meantime, I wish you all a lovely week. 
um, and try and enjoy um, some beautiful, beautiful sunsets that I've seen across London the last couple of days. I hope you managed to get to see one. In the meantime, have a lovely evening. Bye-bye.